I grew up in rural Alabama, about 50 miles from Montgomery, outside of a little place called Troy. When we would visit the little town of Troy, a visit Tuskegee, where Tuskegee University is located, a visit Montgomery, 50 miles away, I saw those signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. We would go to the theater. All of us little black children had to go upstairs to the balcony. And all the little white children went downstairs to the first floor. I would come home and ask my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, why? Why? They would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in trouble. Don't get in the way. In 1956, when I was 16 years old, with some of my brothers and sisters and first cousins, we went down to the public library trying to check out some books. And the librarian told us that the library was for whites only and not for colored. So I never went back to the Pike County Public Library in downtown True, Alabama until July 5th. 1998 for a book signing of my book, Walking with the Wind. And I was in the Congress by then. I signed a lot of books. A lot of people showed up, blacks and whites. At the end of the program, at the end of the book signing, they gave me a library card. It says something about the distance we've come and the progress we've made uh, in America. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the Ape Academy podcast, Act, Protect, Engage. I am the host, Mr. Chase H. The person who you heard speaking is the legendary icon, Mr. John Lewis. Rest in peace. He is a civil rights icon, a civil rights titan. And what he's talking about is his experience as a young boy in Troy, Alabama, a small town in the middle of Alabama, and he's talking about how, as a young child, he couldn't understand why he was different from the other kids. What made him different? And you heard those, war those words, leave it alone, stay out of the way, don't get in trouble. And that was the atmosphere that Jim Crow created in the South for African Americans. This is the third part, the third and final part of our three-part series entitled Separate But Unequal. Okay? We're discussing the legacy of Jim Crow and segregation. We started off with Thomas Rice, who created the character of Jim Crow. Then we moved to Reconstruction, and now we're talking about the reign of Jim Crow, 1877 to 1965. I learned so much researching for this episode. I really hope everyone enjoys it. God bless you guys. I hope that you learned something like I did. Hey. We are starting this epic episode right now. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to join you guys again. Real quick, I want to thank all of our listeners, both domestically in the U.S. and internationally. We just added Austria and Sweden to the fold. Welcome, guys. Welcome, guys. I love all of you. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time out of your day, just a little to listen to our humble podcast you are what make this possible so we're doing it for everyone we're trying to spread our voice trying to spread knowledge to the masses also if you guys could please if you have a few seconds if you have a few minutes please a few minutes a few seconds a few moments of your time can you please turn on your post notification buttons 
so that you can know when a new podcast comes out, when a new podcast is available, a new episode, I should say. And also, if you could please follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, subscribe, write a review if you can, make sure it's five stars, all right? We need that. We really want to break into the top categories, into the top rankings of the education category. That's the category we're in. We're in education and history. So help us out. We really need you. Thank you so much. Also, this is the last part of housekeeping, I promise. Please, we have multiple social media platforms. If you guys aren't already following us, I know a lot of you guys are. We are on Instagram, at Ape Academy Podcast. We are also on Twitter, at A underscore defensive. We are on Facebook as Ape Defensive Solutions. And we are on TikTok as Ape Academy Pod. We're playing around with the TikTok. I haven't really gotten a whole lot of traction on it yet. I feel like it's kind of for kids, but we're trying it. So tune in, guys. Follow us on all those platforms. We really appreciate it. All right, so what are we talking about today? Today's episode is entitled Separate and Unequal, The Reign of Jim Crow, 1877 to 1965. We've got a few sources, a few great sources today. Mississippi History Now. Ferris State University, the University of Virginia, and history.com. All right, so we got some really, really great sources for you guys today. That's where we get all our information. Everything is vetted and verified, baby. So I want to read a quick quote from the great W.E.B. Dubois. This is from his groundbreaking scholarly, scholarly work entitled Black Reconstruction in America. It was written in 1935, and in this quote, he urged Americans to explore an honest history, explore an honest history. I truly believe as a historian and just as a nation in general, we need to be able to look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves. Look at what we achieved that's been great and look at how we failed and fallen short. Look at the evils and look at the good. You should be able to look at both and be okay with that. He writes, quote, Nations reel and stagger on their way. They make hideous mistakes. They commit frightful wrongs. They do great and beautiful things. And shall we not best guide humanity by telling the truth about all of this? So far as the truth is ascernable, Right. That's the quote. So should we not tell the truth when we can tell what's truth from fiction? That's a great quote. And that's kind of what I live by when it comes to history. All right. So we're starting in Mississippi and I'm kind of going back a little bit because I want to really emphasize a few things that I don't know if I touched on enough in the last episode. So. Uh, quick recap last episode we talked about reconstruction in the south following the civil war now the civil war ended in 1865 okay and leading up to the end of the war president abraham lincoln who was the leader of the republican party now the republican party is a lot different than how it looks now it was different back then than it looks now okay he was the head of the party and he knew that the war was going to end well for the Union. The Union was going to win. Everyone knew it. It was just a matter of time. So what he was trying to do was come up with a plan to try to integrate the southern states as seamlessly as possible back into the Union. Easier said than done. And he pondered over this. He spent many, you know, hours going over it again and again. And unfortunately... Five days after the Civil War, he was tragically killed by John Wilkes Booth while he was attending an opera performance. So his successor, President, well, he was vice president while Abraham Lincoln was in office. President Andrew Johnson took over and under him, the country started reconstruction, reconstruction. OK, so that went from 1865 to 1877, and that was the union effort to get the South to integrate back into the fold and in order to do that in order to do that they had to make sure that they knew how to govern the south they knew what 
to let the South get away with and what not to. And one of the things that the North was not willing to compromise on was the treatment of the formerly enslaved people. So the, the freed slaves, the black population in the South was millions. There's four million newly freed slaves. So freedmen now. They called them freedmen back then. And a lot of the southern states were really, really bitter and really, really resentful. They did not want these black folks walking around free. Heck no. Everywhere they looked, there was a black person walking around. They hated that. They weren't used to that. So a lot of these state legislatures, they created new constitutions. And these constitutions were extremely racist, extremely restrictive of the new rights that the freedmen had, that the freedmen were given with the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments that were added to the Constitution after the Civil War. And if you don't remember what those are, you can go back and listen, all right? So this is where we're starting today. I want to highlight Mississippi and South Carolina in particular because the attitudes persuasive in these states following the Civil War, which ended in 1865, was also reflected in the fierce resistance to the civil rights movement in the 60s. A hundred years later, this resentment still burned hot. Let me repeat that. The attitudes that were pervasive in the states, in these southern states, in, in you know particular, Mississippi and South Carolina, number one and number two, the first and the second state to succeed from the union to secede from the union and start the Confederacy, that resentment, that fierce resistance that they felt after the end of the Civil War still burned hot over a hundred years later. When Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement began. All right. It was strongest in the deep, deep South. This resentment was strongest in the deep South. The attitudes of white citizens in these states carried over from Reconstruction to the Jim Crow era. These states were some of the hotspots of conflict during the MLK era. So South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, these are the hotspots because these states were hardcore Confederates. Virginia, it was bad everywhere in the South, but Virginia was like eh, kind of lukewarm. They were one of the last states to join. I think Virginia was the last state to join it the uh, Confederacy. So in the deep, deep South where black folks were the majority, that's where it was the worst. Regions with the mildest experiences during Reconstruction included Upper Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia. In these states, the formerly enslaved people were the minority of the population. Also, the state governments were late to join the Confederacy, so they were reluct reluctant rebels. They didn't really know what they wanted to do. They were like, oh, I don't know. This doesn't look too good, guys. Uh, we're going to hold out. So what they did was they, they held out hope for adverting war in, until the very end, until the attack on Fort Sumner, which started the war. Reconstruction in states where black folks were the majority of the population, like Mississippi and South Carolina, was complete and utter hell. It was a nightmare in those states. Reconstruction in those states was the worst experience ever. Just the bitterness, dude. Like, it, it's it's hard. Look, uh, it's hard to kind of express in words. I'm about to actually. I'm about to try to do it in a few minutes, but just the the feeling of just butt hurtness and like anger and resentment. You got to understand, this was generational. This is ingrained in the fabric of most of these southern states. Separation, right? Separation between the races, inequality, second class, or first of all, citizens. That was un, unheard of. I mean, no black people are citizens, first of all, but they can walk around and look in the eyes of a white man? <laughs> what? They wouldn't even... You would have, if you were black in the South before the Civil War, you would avoid white people at all costs. All right. So, this is really, really hard for a lot of these guys to accept. Okay. 
As centers of slavery and cotton culture in the South, places like Mississippi and South Carolina were the first to succeed from the Union, secede from the Union, and the last to join the Union. The first to break away and the last to join. All right, that's crazy. Planters and plantation owners struggled to accept the outcome of the Civil War. I wonder if you guys can, can you guys hear that rain in the back? Kind of has a nice little setting, setting the mood. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> let me repeat that. Planters and plantation owners, they struggled to accept the outcome of the Civil War. They were in a state of shock. I mean, they were walking around just completely shell-shocked. The social order that had been rock solid for generations had been completely dismantled in only a few short years. So we're talking generational stuff. We're not talking like, oh, we had slaves in 1990, and then in 2000, we didn't have slaves anymore. No, I mean, we they had slaves since 1619. Like, we're talking hundreds of years, multiple generations. Many white farmers and planters still believed they had they were just, they were right to own their slaves, and that they had been justified with breaking off from the Union. They believed their cause was a just cause. They believed that did, they did the right thing, and they did not regret a single thing that they did during that time period. Many white farmers in, and planters, they truly were resentful. They were full of hatred and full of bitterness. Colonel Samuel Thomas, assistant commissioner of the Freedmen's Borough, who opened the borough's new headquarters, new office in Vicksburg, Mississippi, he noted the defiant and incredulous posture of the white citizens. Quote, this is a direct quote from Colonel Thomas. Wherever I go, the street, the shop, the house, the steamboat, I hear the people talk in such a way as to indicate that they are yet unable to conceive of the Negro as possessing any rights at all. So to them, holy crap, the fact that these people think they're equal to us is unacceptable, simply unacceptable, okay? And I, you know, it's hard to kind of explain, but let me let someone who's much more educated than me explain to you guys. But systematically, step by step, the redemptionists, the former Confederates wrote, the South indeed rose again, and they disenfranchised those black men. And they did it in such a clever way. You couldn't, um, you, what are you gonna do? The 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments are ratified, right? So you can't get rid of them, but you could go around them. And starting in 1890 with something called the Mississippi Plan, there were state constitutions, which then unfolded over the next 16 years in each of the former Confederate states. And that's when they established poll taxes, literacy tests, comprehension tests that only a law professor um, could possibly understand. Y you want to know how dramatically effective these um, state constitutional conventions were? Louisiana, one of the majority black states, in 1898, before their state constitutional convention, had uh, 130,000 black men registered to vote. The new constitution was ratified in 1898. By 1904, that number of 130,000 black men registered to vote had been reduced to 1,342. The, there were 2,000 black men elected to office, according to Eric Foner. Um, that is Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr., a Harvard professor and one of the best historians, black, especially black historians, out today. All right. So he's talking about how white folks, especially in the deep south of Mississippi, they could not fathom that black people had any rights at all. So what they did was they made it very, very hard for African-Americans to actually, you know, exercise their rights. So we talk about the amendments. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment he was talking about, they were already ratified in the law. There was nothing the South, there was, there was nothing the state legislatures could do to reverse that. But what they could do is find a way around it, is find a loophole. So they made it 
Technically, yeah, you can go vote. Y'all can go vote, but you got to read this. You got to do this test first. We're not denying you the right to vote. What we're doing is we're making qualifications that you have to pass, that you have to have in order to vote. If you want to vote, you got to own property. Oh, you don't own any property? Oops, too bad. If you want to vote, you got to have a little bit of money to pay this poll tax. Oh, you got your newly free slaves and don't have any money yet? Sorry, you can't vote. So this is what they do. They play these little games, which, you know, which really did a disservice. Well, that's an understatement to the black citizens. And it what it did was it stripped them of their humanity again and stripped them of their rights that were enshrined in the Constitution. That's how they got around it. Colonel Thomas goes on to say that white people, quote, who are honorable in their dealings with their white neighbors will will cheat a Negro without feeling a single twinge of their honor. To kill a Negro, they do not consider murder. To kill a Negro, they do not consider murder. They don't even think killing a black person is murder. Because to them, black people aren't even people. Such ignorant men often openly bragged and boasted that black folks would catch hell when local whites regained power after the Union soldiers left. So they knew, man, we're just holding on. It's just a matter of time until these damn Yankees, these carpetbaggers, they go back up north and guess what? Y'all in trouble because they can't protect you forever. We're not going anywhere. We got jobs. We own the government. That's a scary, scary thing if you were a black citizen back then. The only thing Colonel Thomas could do to explain this irrational level of pure hatred was to point towards, quote, prejudice seared into white minds and hearts during the era of slavery. As Thomas put it, even though white folks, quote, admit that the individual relations of masters and slaves have been destroyed by the war and the president's emancipation proclamation, they have ingrained feeling that the blacks at large belong to whites at large. So even after the, the Emancipation Proclamation by President Abraham Lincoln, white folks still believed that black people belonged to them. It didn't matter. Oh, man, the rain is really coming down now. All right. <laughs> Hopefully it's not too loud. Jim Crow redefined. Jim Crow was the name of the racial caste system that was deeply ingrained mainly in the southern and border, and border states. But Jim Crow was much more than just a series of rigid anti-black laws. Much, much more than that. Jim Crow was a way of life. It governed all social, legal, and economic interactions in the South. Under Jim Crow, African Americans were re relegated to permanent second-class status. Jim Crow represented the, the uh, legitima legitimation of anti-black racism. Jim Crow legitimized anti-black racism. I couldn't get that word out. <laughs> That's what Jim Crow did. It made it okay to hate black people. It was a way of life. It was a social structure, a social, legal, and political structure. Many Christian ministers and theologians spread false gospels declaring white people as God's chosen people, that blacks were cursed to be servants forever, and that God supported segregation. Completely idiotic, of course. Boneheads, fat, sweaty rednecks. <laughs> Probably so. Craniologists, eugenicists, and social Darwinists at every educational level propped up their idiotic beliefs that blacks were unequal using various forms of junk science fake science we're not going to go over into what you know every one of those disciplines but just know that they're all bullcrap they're not real science none of it was supported by actual evidence right it was all kind of twisted and, and manipulated to support blacks inferiority to white people and it was all bullish pro-segregation politicians they gave these fiery speeches right on, at their pulpits whatever at, in church at rallies at public events any chance they could get they would spit venom from their mouths right they made these fiery these fiery 
evil racist speeches on the great critical crucial danger of integration the dilution of the white race with black blood that was the worst fear at the time the worst fear of white southern society at the time was that their pure Aryan blood would be mixed up with this mongrel way this mongrel race of people they did not want to taint their ancestry right they did not want to taint the future they were afraid of that and segregation was partially to make sure that never happened of course it didn't succeed right it's things still happened but that was the one of the intentions was to make sure that that line was clearly drawn in big black marker do not cross it the creation of a mongol race of mixed bloods was the worst fear of many white southerners the worst fear that their daughter would ever even look at a black man or vice versa holy crap the world's ending everyone's on fire it's the apocalypse right it's the worst possible thing that could happen mainstream popular magazines and newspapers constantly refer to black citizens as the n-word we're not going to say it on here because we're a uh a clean podcast but the n-word coons and darkies their articles helped to fuel resentment and hatred for people they never even met and didn't even begin to try to understand just imagine if time magazine or google or yahoo or the new york times was like n-word 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 they're unequal coons darkies don't trust them integration must go down these are mainstream publications and back then people didn't have the internet they didn't have tv tv was not well they did but tv was not you know widespread back in the well tv came out much later but yeah they didn't have tv but they did have radio they had stage performances so all this was kind of perpetuated through popular media even children's games innocent children were indoctrinated in this racist anti-black just fervor children's games portrayed blacks as inferior animal-like creatures all major southern social institutions reflected and supported this oppression every single major social institution just imagine everywhere you look everywhere you look colored blacks only no black people it was a i saw a sign when i'm doing my research said no n-words no dogs no mexicans <laughs> they put it with with mexicans and black folks with dogs i mean it's just hard to believe now and we've come such a long way it's hard to believe but believe it because it's fact it really happened the very fabric of society was structured around it. So if you blew it up, it was like these power structures structures would come tumbling down. And that was like the worst thing that could happen. All right. Jim Crow etiquette. Now this part, you know, I had to laugh at a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, it's some heavy stuff. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. This is a heavy podcast. It means a lot to me. Um, I always knew this, you know, I knew since a, a small child about this stuff, but to actually kind of revisit it and really do some serious research about it, it was disturbing. Um, it's disturbing because we have, I, you know, and I, I'm victim of it. We have this 21st century mindset. We, all these things that we take for granted, I can just get up, walk to my car, drive to the gas station walk in pay for my gas walk out i'm not worried about anything i'm not i can look at people i can say hello i can hold the door for people i you know you can shake people's hand and you don't think about the the fact that there was a whole race of people an entire society a, a entire black society that couldn't do any of that stuff just the, the smallest things like asking someone for help you, you wouldn't dare. All right, so we're going to go over some Jim Crow etiquette, and this is going to be hard for some people to hear. So, you know, listener discretion advised. It's not meant to be 
upsetting. It's not meant to be, um, you know, traumatic, but this is how it was in some areas of this country. And like I said in the beginning of this podcast, we have to be able to look in the freaking mirror, look back and stare and be like, you know what? This is effed up, but this is what happened. Someone needs to talk about it. And I really wanted to do this series in the wake of MLK. You know, I did a, I, uh, did a podcast episode on MLK Day. And I did one before, and this is the last one. But I really wanted to emphasize what was he fighting against. Everyone knows about the sit-ins. Everyone knows about the marches. Everyone knows about the nonviolence and the March on Washington. But let's go further than that. What was actually the nitty-gritty that no one really talks about. Let's talk about it right now. The aim of Jim Crow was to prop up a system that preached white supremacy and superiority in all important ways. Every way that was important, white people were better than, okay? This superiority included but was not limited to intelligence, morality, and civilized behavior. Sexual relations between blacks and whites would produce a mongrel race which would destroy America. Thus, Treating blacks as equals would encourage interracial sexual unions. Oh, heck no. That's a no-no. Any activity, any activity, which could possibly suggest social equality (laughs) would encourage interracial sexual relations. That's what people thought. Anything that might look like a black person might be treated the same as a white person, that means they want to have sex with everyone. That means, oh my God, if, 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 we, if we call someone mister, that means the next thing you know, they're going to be dating our, our daughters and taking them out and mixing blood just because we call them mister. How stupid is that? If necessary, violence could be used to keep black folks at the bottom of the social barrel. They made sure of that. Here are some examples that we found of Southern social etiquette through our research. Social, uh, so Southern social etiquette norms. And this shows just how absurd, pervasive, and inclusive these beliefs were back then. All right. Actually, (laughs) cliffhanger. Before we do that, we're going to go on a quick musical break. Leave you at the edge of your seat. God bless y'all. Ape. What's up, everybody? I'm back. That was a short break. I just wanted to break up my voice a little bit. I need a break for my own voice, so I know y'all do. (laughs) I'm sorry. I apologize for the heaviness of the content, man. I am a historian, and I only speak facts. That's it. I think it's important to to educate as many people as possible. And, you know, since our podcast is being heard all over the world, I think it's, it's really good. It's really good for other countries to hear the experiences of a um an amazing group of americans and how what they had to fight through and overcome all right so we're talking about jim crow social etiquette now we found these ridiculous social norms and social requirements that everyone had to follow and it was some of it was said and some of it was unsaid okay here we go a black male could not offer his hand to shake hands with a white male because it implied being socially equal. A black male could not offer his hand or any other body part to a white woman. Or he risked being accused of rape by simply touching a white woman. So if you bump into a white woman, if your hand brushes against her shoulder, if you hand her something and her hand touches your hand, you could be accused of rape only by simply by touching them. And being accused of the rape of a white woman was a death sentence for you. Blacks and whites were not supposed to eat together. If they did happen to eat together, whites were always served first. First. Every time. It had to happen. 
and some sort of barrier or partition had to be placed between the groups. So there's no way they could intermingle and eat. No, 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 no. No way. Heck no. So black folks would be on one side of the cafeteria, white people on the other side. If they had to, if they had to, if they just had to eat at the same time and there's no way around it, the white people would get served first, of course, and then they would draw up a curtain or some type of barrier in between them so they couldn't look at each other. Man. Under no circumstance was a black male to offer to light the cigarette of a white female. That gesture implied intimacy. That was an intimate gesture. Guess what? You're in trouble if you do that. Don't even try. Don't do it. Don't even look at a white woman. Just keep walking. If she asks for a light, I know, ma'am, I don't have a light. Blacks weren't even allowed to show public affection amongst themselves. You couldn't even, you couldn't even kiss your own wife. Especially kissing because it apparently offended the sensibilities of white folks. Also, whites did not use courtesy titles of respect when, spe when speaking or referring to black folks. For example, using the terms Mr., Mrs., Miss, Sir, or Ma'am. They didn't use that. You weren't allowed to call a black person Sir or a black woman Ma'am. Instead, blacks were called by their first name, or if they didn't know your la your first name, and you're a man, they would call you a boy. If you're a woman, they'd call you hey you, or lady, or woman. They weren't calling you ma'am, they weren't calling you miss, and they weren't calling you missus. No way, no how. That would, that would imply that they respected you, which implied you might be equal, which implied that you were the same as them, which implied that eventually your races might mix, and that couldn't happen. But, guess what the caveat that this is? African Americans always had to use courtesy titles when referring to whites. First names were strictly forbidden. There was no way in hell that you're going to go up to a white man and say, Hey, Bart, hey, can you help me with the truck? Hell no. Nah. You'd be run out of town. A cross would be burned on your lawn. You might lose your life doing that. You had to say Mr. Bart or whatever. No first names. Always Mr., Mrs., Ma'am. You know the drill. You get the point. All right. Now, there's some. There's a few more simple rules that we found. And this is from Stetson Kennedy, who was the author of The Jim Crow Guide, which was written in 1990. And it outlined some simple rules that blacks needed to adhere by when conversing with whites. So talking back and forth. You're having a convo. <laughs> and, and this is kind of... Guys, this is what I was I was saying about things that I take for granted. Just talking to my coworkers who are white. That was not, I had to step back when I was researching this and think about it. Like, man, like, back during Jim Crow, black people had to think about how they talk to people. Not just who they talk to. Not just the titles that they use, but how they actually conversed. The way they talked. The words they used. The way they put their sentences together. Everything had to be, it was like a well-choreographed dance, but a racist one. <laughs> you know, I couldn't even talk to my boss. I couldn't even walk in his office. I couldn't even address him as Scott. I would just go, Mr. Sherman. All right, here's some rules. Never assert or even intimate that a white person is lying. Never. Never imply dishonorable intentions to a white person. Never suggest that a white person is from an inferior class, like, oh, he's poor, or he's less than you, or he's not as educated as you. No. Never lay claim to or overly demonstrate superior knowledge or intellect. Never curse a white person. Never laugh at a white person. Never comment upon the appearance of a white female. Just don't do it if you're a black male or a black woman. It doesn't matter. Just don't do it. Okay? Never. <laughs> I had to laugh. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. I chuckled at the never curse a white person, never laugh at a white person, <laughs> and never claim or demonstrate superior intelligence. Cause I'll be clowning people all the time. Like, I would have, yo, listen, I would have been locked up. Like, they ain't get, I would have to go live in Harlem or something cause, and be around some black folks because they would have me locked up in the South. I, I would have to move out because I talk too much. And my grandfather was like that too. He was real fiery. And he was just a fighter. And, you know, he grew up in the North, luckily, because if he didn't, he would be in trouble, too. But I just I, I just can't imagine living in this era. It must have been so difficult. Jim Crow etiquette 
operated in tandem with Jim Crow laws. Even with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments ratified into law, the administration of Rutherford B. Hayes, the worst president ever, and the racist Democratic Congress of 1877 looked the other way as many southern states passed laws basically throwing out the Constitution. They just crapped on it, took a gigantic poop on the Constitution. Let's talk about Plessy v. Ferguson. All right, now I can't talk about this topic without talking about Plessy v. Ferguson. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 1896, they ruled that racial segregation laws did not violate the U.S. Constitution if the facilities for each race were equal in quality, a doctrine known as separate but equal. So the title of this podcast episode is Separate But Unequal. It legitimized Jim Crow laws and the Jim Crow way of life. It totally made it legit because the Supreme Court ruled 7-2 to two against Plessy. Let's talk about the case real quick because I wouldn't be a real scholar if I didn't talk about Plessy v. Ferguson. The decision legitimized the, main, the many state laws reestablishing racial segregation after the era of Reconstruction. In 1890, this is what happened. This is the story. In 1890, Louisiana passed the separate car law, which claimed that it would aid the comfort of passengers by creating equal but separate rail cars for blacks and whites. So everyone knows back then they didn't have like, you know, not many people rode planes. A lot of people took the train around, especially long distances. So in order to make everyone comfortable, in order to satisfy everybody, there will be separate trains. They wouldn't put a partition. It would be completely separate trains. So it wasn't like, you know, buses where you had to go to the back of the bus or you had to go past this barrier. No. Your train, this was a colored train car, a colored rail car and a white rail car, okay? Separate car law. This was a ruse, of course. Not a single public facility or accommodation offered equal facilities for black citizens. So it was run down. The black car was run down, dirty, no one cared about it, no, no one did any upkeep on it. The law made it illegal for blacks to sit in coach seats reserved for whites, and whites could not sit in black seats. They could not sit on the black rail train. All right. In 1891, though, a group of pretty bold black folks, a, a group of black people attempted to test the system. Mr. Homer a. Plessy, Mr. Homer A. Plessy, who was nearly entirely white. He was basically a white man, pretty much. But remember, if you got one drop of black blood, you're, uh, if you have one drop, just one, you're black, okay? That's crazy, right? Mr. Homer A. Plessy, who was nearly entirely white, he was seven-eighths white with, and one-eighth black, which by the one drop law made him legally black he sat in the white only railroad coach car plessy was immediately arrested one of the distinguishing features of american racial politics is that uh if you in in, in many respects uh if you are of apparent african ancestry at all you're black doesn't mean, I mean, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, the plaintiff in that case was a, was, a, was a, quote, black person who was seven-eighths white. Didn't matter. That eighth of blackness made you black. A lot of black people have come to like the one-drop rule because functionally it is helpful in many respects. If you think about some of the most important um, leaders in African-American history, W.E.B. Du Bois. I mean, in, in other regimes, in other nations, he might not be viewed as black. Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass's father was white, the great Frederick I did not Douglass. know that before I researched you know, this. One drop rule, black. Wow, that's amazing, that's great information. I actually did not know that Frederick Douglass's father was white. I didn't know that. I learn all the I learn stuff all the time. I'm not too proud to admit when I don't know something. See, a lot of these people, they don't want to admit when they don't know stuff. I do my research. I'm proud of that. And, you know, we're here to learn. That's what we're doing the podcast for. All right, so Plessy, just like we talked about, he was 
seven eighths white and only one eighth of his blood was black but that made him legally a black man so he could not see he could not, he could not sit in the white car he was immediately arrested Plessy's lawyer argued that Louisiana did not have the right to label a citizen as white and another as black for purposes of restricting their rights and privileges so they couldn't just say you're black you're white oh uh, you can't sit here you can't just go and just point to someone and tell them what they are for the purpose of restricting their rights but the C the supreme court did not agree with them um they voted seven to two to uphold the louisiana law that declared racial segregation did not necessarily mean a uh a rejection of quality right just because you're segregation you there was segregation didn't mean that the quality wasn't equal that's what they were saying basically the supreme court of the land legitimized the creation of two separate societies one that had the advantage and was white and was loved and respected the other was despised and it was black two societies that's what the Supreme Court did in that decision. It was okay. No worries. You're good. Keep on doing what you're doing. All right, all right. So this is the last part of the podcast. Many Southern states created their own loopholes, though, to get around the new constitutional amendments. We kind of talked about that with Henry Gates Jr. For example, in some states, blacks were denied the right to vote by grandfather clauses. Laws that restricted the right to vote to people whose ancestors had voted before the Civil War. And of course, that was all white people because a lot of the black citizens, their ancestors were slaves and they didn't have the right to vote. Poll taxes, fees that were charged to poor, the, to poor blacks, white primaries, only Democrats could vote and only whites could be Democrats. So black people couldn't vote. And literacy tests, name all the vice presidents and Supreme Court justices throughout American's history. Really, no one knows that. And that's what Henry Gates was talking about earlier in that clip I played. He was like, only a law professor would know every Supreme Court justice in the history of the United States. Only a highly educated person could name all the freaking vice presidents. I mean, I don't even know if I can do that, right? Right now, sitting here right now, I don't think I can do that. And you expect newly freed slaves to know who the Supreme Court justices are? That's absurd. So that's what they did. That was a loophole they created to get around the amendments. The Plessy v. Ferguson ruling is sent a clear message. Discrimination against blacks is completely acceptable. Completely accept, uh, acceptable. Jim Crow states passed official statutes regulating interactions between the races. There were signs placed on above water fountains on door entrances and exits and in front of public facilities. There were separate hospitals, separate prisons, separate public and private schools, separate churches, separate cemeteries, separate public restrooms, and separate public accommodations. Wow. That's a lot of things that are separate. That is so stupid. There were even separate mental asylums that we're gonna talk about later. In most cases, black facilities were in terrible shape compared to white ones. They were generally inferior and less well-kept. In many instances where no, there were no black facilities available at all, so you would go to the beach and there'd be nowhere you can go to the bathroom, nowhere you could eat. You would have to bring your own lunch because they just, they just didn't serve you. If you had to drive long distance, you better bring gas cans. If you run out of gas in rural Arkansas on your way somewhere, on your way to Little Rock from Pocahontas and you run out of gas, you're screwed because no gas station along those dark country roads are going to serve you. So you better make sure you're prepared. That's just how it was sometimes. Jim Crow laws, they affected every aspect of life. Like I said before, there's, look, there's so many, this is so ridiculous. Okay. Okay. Let me, let me stop. For example, in 1935, Oklahoma prohibited blacks and whites from boating together. They couldn't even get on a boat together. For some reason, boating represented social equality. In 1905, Georgia established separate parks for blacks and whites. In 1930, Birmingham, Alabama made it illegal for blacks and whites to play checkers, chess, or dominoes together. They couldn't even play games in a park together. Here is a list of a, of a, a few typical Jim Crow 
uh, social norms, okay? I found these. Uh, they're compiled by Martin Luther King Jr.'s staff, okay? Barbers. This is in Georgia. No colored barber shall serve as a barber to white girls or women. Blind wards. So this is schools for the blind, hospitals for the blind. And this is in Louisiana. The board of trustees, you must maintain a separate building on separate ground for the admission, care, instruction, and support of all blind persons of the colored or black race. They don't even know they're black. They can't see anything. So stupid. Burial. This is in Georgia. The officer in charge shall not bury or allow to be buried any colored persons upon ground set apart or used for the burial of white persons. Whew. Can't even get buried. You can't even get buried in the same ground as a white person. Mental hospitals. The mental hospitals. Mental hospitals. This was in Georgia. The board of control shall see the proper and distinct apartments are arranged for said patients so that in no case shall Negroes and white persons be together. This isn't a mental institution. They couldn't even have their own. <laughs> they couldn't even mix mental patients. You couldn't be buried in the same ground as a white person if you were blind think about that if you were blind if there was a white blind person and a black blind person they couldn't even see each other they couldn't be in the same room <laughs> the jim crow laws both said and unsaid were were backed by threats of real violence though in all seriousness anyone who violated jim crow norms risked everything they risked it all their jobs their homes even their lives there was little legal recourse against assaults or violence because the criminal justice system was also heavily controlled by Jim Crow cronies. Violence and the threat of violence was instrumental in keeping Jim Crow in power, and it was a method of social control. All right. This was a horrifying way to keep people in line, pretty much. That's what they did. They kept people in line. That was the only way to do it was to make sure that they were controlled and it's scary and it's sad the legal definition of lynching is when three or more persons which constitute a mob put someone to death extra legally without court sanction without legal sanction and they do it for the purpose of you know, tradition uh, and or whatever their version of justice is. And this becomes a legal definition by the 1920s of the NAACP and their uh, struggle, of course, against lynching and trying to make lynching a federal crime. That is the introduction to a great PBS documentary series about the evils of lynching in the South. Okay, so it's heavy stuff. I wanted to, to play that because I wanted to define what lynching was. Okay, lynching is no joke. It was a it was a common, um, brutal form of control. It was a form of control. That's what it was. Intimidation, control a way to keep people in their place, quote-unquote place. Lynching was a sadistic and often, often public form of mob rule. Between 1882, which is when lynching was very rare, and then 1968, when once again lynching kind of fell, fell off the map, between 1882 and, 18, and 1968, there were 4,730 known lynchings, including 3,000 440 of black men and women. Most of the victims of lynch law, as it was called, were, were hung or shot. Some were burned, castrated, beaten with clubs, or dismembered. By the mid-1800s, whites were the most common victims and the most common culprits. But by the time of radical reconstruction, black people became the main targets. According to social economists, Gunner Myrtle, in his book 1944, 
quote, the southern states account for nine-tenths of the lynchings. More than two-thirds of the remaining one-tenth occurred in the six states which immediately bordered the south. So basically, all the lynchings are done in the south or on border states, right? Or in border states. So states that border southern states. West Virginia is one of them, okay? Approximately one-third of all victims were falsely accused. All sexual interactions between black men and white women were socially repugnant and illegal. Just being in a relationship with the opposite race was akin to rape. So lynchings were the most common in small and middle-sized towns where blacks were often seen as economic competition. Okay, story of Emmett Teal, who apparently whistled at a white woman, which I highly doubt he did. He was from the north, and he didn't know the customs probably. I doubt he highly... They, they could just make something up, and they can kill you for it. They beat him and dismembered him so badly and threw him in a river so badly that his mother refused to have a closed casket. He wanted... She wanted the world to see what they did to his to her son. It's horrible. So, lynchings were the most common in small and middle-sized towns where black folks were often seen as economic competition. So, direct competition. Whites resented any economic and political gains made by blacks. Lynchings served multiple purposes. It was cheap, and it was a sick form of entertainment. It was a cheap, sick form of entertainment. It served as a rallying, uniting point for whites, it functioned as an ego boost for cowardly, low-class, uneducated rednecks and low-status white folks. It was a method of defending white domination, and it helped to slow down the social equality movement. It put a damper on things. The summer of 1919 was dubbed by James Weldon Johnson, the famous black author, as the Red Summer. I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have heard of the Red Summer. In 1919, there were race riots in Chicago, Knoxville, Charleston, Omaha, and two dozen other cities across the country. The riots of 1919 were not the first nor the last mass lynching event in American history. The heroes of the civil rights movement, insert Martin Luther King. So the reason why I did this, the reason why I, I put this much detail, and the reason why and I apologize for it if it was too detailed and too graphic. The reason why I did this was I wanted to set the tone. I wanted to paint a portrait for you guys to show what Martin Luther King walked into. Insert Martin Luther King. Insert the civil rights movement. At this point in my podcast, I want you guys to think about the transition. So when we just ended, we're talking about lynching. We're talking about um, Jim Crow South. We're, we talked about social etiquette, social norms certain laws, different institutions, separate but equal, AKA separate but unequal, in walks Rosa Parks, in walks MLK, in walks the um, Southern Leadership Conference and a bunch of other organizations, NAACP, all right? I just wanted to set the stage for you guys. Um, This is what MLK had to deal with. So the whole point of me doing this I wanted to take a different angle rather than just talk about the marches everyone knows about the marches I wanted to talk about what came before the marches this is the world that Martin Luther King inherited this is the world that the civil rights movement inherited a lot of the a lot of the participants in the civil rights movement were kids they were teenagers they were college kids most of them were young people young people or pastors a lot of people that were involved in the church but the civil rights movement, much like a lot of these social movements today, are fueled by the young. They're fueled by the young and, ide and idealistic people of our country that have a lot to risk, that want to risk it all. They want to serve the community. And I highly respect any young person who goes out there and fights for their rights as long as they're not destroying any property or hurting people. You go out and you protest. You go, Don't let anyone tell you not to. Your voice needs to be heard. You're important too. And if it wasn't for the young people of the civil rights movement, the young, brave heroes, then we wouldn't be where we are today. Thank you so much for joining me, guys. Thank you so much. I'm sorry if it was long today. I'm sorry if it was graphic and disturbing. But I really wanted to paint a good, accurate picture of what we're talking about in honor 
a Martin Luther King Jr. He would want it this way. He would want us to be truthful and look in the mirror and highlight all the horrible things that happen. And but we have hope. Our world has changed a lot. Our country has changed a lot. We are still the greatest country in the world. God bless you guys. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Long live America. God bless America. Ape. Remember, guys, put God and your family first. Stay positive. Search for truth. Get after it. Work hard. Grind. Don't let anyone tell you you can't be something. You can be anything you want. You can be anything you put your mind to. God bless y'all. I love you. Ape. Out. <laughs>